Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. my timer up there so I can keep track of my time. We're going to go to John 10 and 10. The Bible says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Pastor, on this last night, would you please pray for this last session? Before you're seated, can you just raise your hands and everyone lift your voice and just say, God, have your way in me tonight. God, I pray, God, if it's not for me, God, help me, Lord, to receive something tonight that I can be a help to someone else. God, I pray, Jesus, minister to us through your word, God. Lord, help me, God, to be a guardian, Lord Jesus, to guard my heart, my mind, my family, my children, my marriage in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And you can be seated tonight. So we've spent the last two sessions talking about sexual sin. We've talked a lot about pornography. We've talked a lot about staying sexually pure as men and women, as sons and daughters of God. And we've talked about avoiding sexual sin, fornication, adultery, pornography. And we've even discussed things like healing and recovery for addictions from sexual immorality. But tonight we're going to talk about protecting our families but before we get to that before we get to protecting our families and our children I want to address the other side of this coin and when I originally started to plan this series this wasn't on the list of things to discuss but after this weekend and being in prison and talking to some other ministry and I felt like the Lord dropped this in my spirit that I needed to address and talk about and that's the other side of the coin people that is not necessarily active participant in sexual sin but people who have been victims of sexual abuse, people who've suffered at the hands of an abuser and had their innocence taken, who've been exploited. And we see that this is not just something that takes place in our generation, but this happened in the Bible. We see in the Old Testament, we're going to go to 2 Samuel 13, and the story there talks about a girl named Tamar. Absalom was the son of David, and he had a sister named Tamar. David also had a son named Amnon. Now, Amnon and Absalom were half-brothers. And Amnon fell in love with Tamar. Now, I don't know if you'd call it true love. You might call it lust. But he wanted to be with her. And so he was almost vexed to the point he had a friend that noticed, and he said, what's going on with you? What's your deal? He said, oh, I'm in love with Tamar. I'm in love with Tamar. And this friend gave him counsel and said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go and lay in your bed and pretend that you're sick? And when your father comes to check on you, you tell him that you need tomorrow to come and bake you some little cakes and minister to you in your sickness. He's like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. So David came, and that's exactly what he said. He goes, oh, I'm sick, Father. Send tomorrow to me that she can bake me cakes before me and feed me and nourish me. So 
David went to Tamar and said, go to your brother. Go minister to, he, to him, prepare him some food and things. He is sick. And so Tamar, no clue, no idea that Amnon had these feelings, goes to his room in his home, and she begins to prepare these cakes. She bakes it, she prepares it, and she basically takes to him and says, here you go, here's your, your nourishment, here's some things to help you get well. And he's like, no, no, I can't eat, I can't eat. And he says, but maybe you can just come and bring it to me in my room, in my bed. And he says, just send the servants out, just send the servants out, I don't even want them here. And so the servants are all sent out, and Tamar's left alone with Amnon. And when Amnon is left alone, he begs her, come to my bed, come to my bed. Well, Tamar says, no, I am not going to do that. That's not proper. That's not appropriate. Tamar was a virgin. She was unmarried. She knew that it was wrong and that it was a sin, and she told him no. She even went on to reason with him, if you do this, you're going to become as a fool. I'll have shame upon me. I'll be an outcast. Don't do this thing. But the Bible says that he would not listen to her. And being a whole lot stronger than she was, he raped her. The Bible says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 13, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now what happened immediately after he forced himself on her and had his way with her, this supposed love he had for her once he had fulfilled his sexual desire turned to hate. And it says, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. And he said under arise and be gone. And it says the hatred he had for her was even greater than the love he supposedly had for her. And he told her to get out. And she's like, no, don't cast me out. This is even worse than the actions that you've just done towards me. He said, I don't care. Get out. And they forced her out. Well, this garment that she wore showing that she was a virgin and that she was clean and pure, the Bible says that she poured ashes on her head and she ripped her garment. And she went to her brother Absalom's house. And Absalom, seeing that her garment was rent and torn, this garment that signified, I am a virgin, and now it's ripped and torn and she has ashes on her head, he immediately, did Amnon have his way with you? And, of course, she says, yes, she's grieving. The Bible says that she just kept crying. She couldn't stop. She just went on crying, the Bible says there in verse 19. She would not stop crying. But Absalom, he was a little bit indifferent to her at that moment. I'm going to read it to you from the Message Bible, what he said back to her. Amnon says, now, dear, my dear sister, let's keep it quiet, a family matter. He is, after all, your brother. Don't take this so hard. In essence, let's just keep it hush-hush. We don't want to stir up no trouble. That even victimized her once again by her own brother. And so he didn't listen to her. And so she went on and remained in his house and continued to grieve. For two years, she grieved. Nothing was done. Amnon, he was David's firstborn son. Nothing was done to him. And she began to feel, I can only imagine, very bitter, very frustrated, very resentful. And so two years later, finally, the Bible tells us that Absalom throws a party and asks David to send Amnon and his servants, and he kills Amnon two years later. Now, why he waited two years, how all of it played out, I don't know. But what we do know is that for two years, while Tamar was in his home, she grieved, she cried, she felt shamed, and she continued on. And I'm sure at some point she probably became very difficult, and understandably so. 
Victims of sexual abuse feel tremendous guilt. But in essence, when they have been mistreated and their innocence taken, they've done nothing wrong. And what they need is someone to listen, someone to validate their feelings, someone to have empathy. And we say, well, what's empathy? Well, what they don't need is sympathy. And there's a difference in sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is, oh, I just feel, I feel sorry for you for what you've gone through. Empathy is where you try to place yourselves in their shoes and understand how would I feel if that happened to me. So they need empathy. They need to have understanding. And the process for healing, it's different for everyone, and it can take a really, really long time. They don't need to hear things like, oh, it only happened one time, or that was a long time ago, or things like that. They need understanding. They need validation. And as us, as the church, if it's been us that's been in it, we're here to offer understanding. And if you've not, but you maybe know someone that has, you can learn how to offer them understanding, how you can offer them help. Because people that don't get a strong support system when they've gone through something like that and haven't had counseling, many times live a life of constantly feeling ashamed, inferior, humiliated, and grieved. And many times they have what they term and what they feel is guilt, even though they really have nothing to be guilty over. All right? So many times they become depressed, and they have a lot of unresolved grief and loss in their life. All right? So we're going to take a moment. And I want to show you a video that um, takes us about six or seven minutes. And this is a lady that walked the road of abuse. Now, she's not apostolic, okay, but she walked the road of abuse and found healing. And I think her testimony is really good, and it gives a good insight to that road. So if you could play that for me, we're going to take a few moments and just watch that. I remember being surrounded in a hallway uh, with a lot of men, and then I don't remember much else after that. I remember being given um, something to drink. It was it was sweet. Um, I'm assuming it may have been some alcohol sweetened up with Kool-Aid or something that I would drink. I was probably, um, I, my guess is three. At that tender age, Marilyn Williams didn't know it was wrong, but she knew how she felt. And I can't remember everything, but the feelings I have when I remember that are terror. The group stopped molesting her when she was still quite young, but Marilyn's father continued to sexually abuse her for years. I remember wearing many pajamas to bed, layers and layers and layers, um, as an adolescent, uh, trying to uh, do what I could to keep it from happening. Um, as a young child, I think I have some snapshots of me sleeping in corners of rooms, thinking that maybe the bed just wasn't safe. If I slept in a, on the floor in a corner, that would be better. When Marilyn was a teenager, the abuse increased. I remember uh, coming home from school pretty much every day in junior high um, and knowing that my father was waiting for me, uh, laying there, usually naked, usually on the bed or on a couch, waiting for me to come home. He was usually drunk by the time I was home. Marilyn finally confided in a favorite teacher, thinking that she would keep my secret. And, um, and of course, the next day, uh, I came to school and the police were there. You're under arrest. And my father. Uh, was arrested that same morning and I'll never forget just how uh, ashamed I felt to bring this shame upon my family. Marilyn was taken to a children's home for a time but the reprieve didn't last long. After some mandatory counseling by the social agency both father and daughter were returned home. 
my dad hadn't changed at all, so I had to literally fight him off pretty much every day from ages 13 to 18. In her own fearful, vague way, Marilyn tried to let her mom know. Uh, she thought my dad had really changed, and so I didn't fully tell her. I may have tried to drop hints, but she thought we were doing well, and she thought everything was fine. Um, I knew that if I turned my father in again, he would most likely go to prison, and I would go into the foster care system. And I was in high school, and uh, that was my life. The teachers, uh, my schooling, uh, my extracurricular activities, that was my support system, and so I didn't want to lose that. By her senior year, Marilyn was deeply depressed. Her only hope of escape was going away to college until her dad took care of that dream. He basically said to me that my college fund was spent on his lawyer, that the lawyer that he had to hire to defend himself from my betraying him is the way he saw it and, and worded it. Marilyn had heard about God in church, though she didn't understand much about him, but she decided to pray. I said, the first half of my life has been really rough. Do you think you could make the second half better? And um, it was about probably a year later that I met my husband. And so I knew that God heard that prayer. Um, it was as if he delivered a, uh, a knight in shining armor, but he was in a Honda Prelude. Marilyn knew Mike truly loved her, and they married. She was finally free from abuse. She'd even been honest with him about her past, up to a point. You know, I said to him something like, I come from uh, uh, some form of abuse, have some incest in my background from my father, but I said, I want you to know it hasn't affected me whatsoever and that I'm perfectly fine. And so, but of know, course, she wasn't fine. Though finally in a healthy home, Marilyn had never had a chance to work through the years of trauma. But help was soon to come in the form of Christian friends from her high school days. That was an exciting time because they began to introduce me to Jesus. I said, Lord, you have been uh, with me all my life, and I will commit my heart my life unto you. And I just couldn't stop reading God's word. And so that was a big change in me. Uh, the other was just I wanted to worship him all the time. I couldn't wait to get to church. Within a couple of years, Mike became a Christian, too. Marilyn's life seemed great now, but emotionally she had a long way to go. I was struggling with depression, didn't quite understand why. Why am I depressed when I have this beautiful home that I've never, you know, had before in that sense and and uh, uh, had two, you know, two beautiful children. Um, I started struggling with panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I began to experience flashbacks of the abuse that I had you know, stuffed down, way down from when I was a little girl. It was, it was severe. I would uh, lose uh, the ability to discern past and present. Mike remained loving and supportive throughout it all. There were some days where um, he would come home and I might not recognize him. I might feel like I was four or two or six or seven. Uh, I was very confused, very disoriented many days. So he would talk to me and tell me that I was safe here, that nobody was gonna hurt me, um, that this house loved Jesus and that uh, Jesus was a good God. Marilyn went for Christian counseling. And that's when I was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. Um, they don't call it that anymore. Um, they call it dissociative disorder. And, and I was, was frightened. I didn't know how my husband would take this. Didn't know what this meant about my future. What it meant was Marilyn suffering for nine years with sporadic flashbacks so severe that she took on other personalities to cope. After many years of hard work, light appeared at the end of the tunnel. 
and and finally I, I kind of got to this point in my healing journey so to speak that I was really ready to let it go and you know you're ready when you really don't care who did what to you anymore you just want a life outside of it and one of the first things that he called me to was forgiveness first her mother I started feeling this love for my mom that I just didn't even know that I really had and then the tough one her dad I wrote my father a letter and there was no response and he's been in hiding ever since nobody really knows where he is and so he was never willing and open to face his uh, actions and never interested in reconciliation with me um, but I felt a peace because the forgiveness in my heart towards him and being open to that possibility uh, letting the Lord lead us through that freed me from that weight of the pain it's been 10 years now that Marilyn has been free of the mental torment of sexual abuse. She and Mike have been married 25 years and have two grown children and a grandson they adore. It's just really wonderful life in family and uh, ministry and uh, peace and joy. Uh, my mom and I enjoy a wonderful relationship where I'm so glad that we were both willing to do the hard work of restoration. Marilyn earned a college degree after all and now speaks to women's groups around the world. I find that women, no matter what culture, are typically exploited, abused, neglected. At the very least, they don't know their value. And so I had to spend a lot of time in the Word and in worship and in prayer. And it's an amazing thing. We don't really understand it. But as we behold the Lord, we become like the Lord. And He has the power to heal you, no matter what you've been through. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is our only hope. It's our only hope for sanity. It's our only hope for healing. It's our only hope for a future outside of all this brokenness. I remember being surrounded. That's an amazing testimony to me. It took forgiveness and hard work. And yes, it's unfair that the person that plays the role and has the assignment of being the victim is the one that has to face all the challenges and face the hard work to find healing themselves and but if they do they find and you notice that she said God led her to forgiveness God led her to ministry and now she's able to minister to other women and even among other nations because of the road she has walked so what is sexual abuse child sexual abuse includes any sex act between an adult and a minor or two minors where one exerts power over the other it means forcing, coercing, or persuading a child to engage in any type of sexual act. That can even include things, it can include things like non-contact acts, such as maybe communicating in a sexual manner online, um, chat rooms, gaming, where they're talking to each other on their headsets, possibly by phone, texts, sending inappropriate texts, sexting, things like that, exposure to pornography, exhibitionism, many different ways. There's a few statistics, you know I like to share them with you because, and the reason why I do this, I hope it doesn't bore you, but I hope it brings an awareness to how big of a problem it is in our society. Because so many times we think we're in here and the world's out there and it's out there, but I'm telling you, this stuff permeates throughout the church as well. One in 10 kids will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. Before their 18, one in 10 kids. And it's one in seven for girls. In 2013, the statistic was that 400,000 babies born in the U.S. that year would become victims of child abuse unless something was done to stop it. In a year, four, almost half a million babies born would end up being a victim of child abuse, sexual abuse. 
Out of the victims of, of sexual abuse, out of child victims, only 38% will tell. Most of them will never disclose it. They'll take it to the grave. Almost 70% of all the reported sexual assaults, so 38% are reported out of 70% of those, including assaults on adults. So if you take sexual assaults across the board, whether kids or adults, almost 70% occur on children under the age of 17. Abusers can be neighbors, friends, family members, coaches, teachers. They can be found in many places. About 90%, nine out of 10 kids who are victims know their abuser. Only 10% are abused by a stranger. 30% of them happen by family members. 60% of children are sexually abused by people that the family trusts. As many as 40% of children who are sexually abused are abused by older, more powerful children. Juveniles are the offenders in 43% of assaults on children under age six. So of the kids that are sexually abused under age six, almost half of them, it happens by another child, 12, 13, 14, 15. 81% of child sexual abuse incidences for all ages occur in a one perpetrator, one victim circumstance. So what that means is, typically when a child has been sexually abused, it's been a one victim, one perpetrator, one person. And typically what happens is it's not a one-time occurrence. It happens over multiple times, but it's with the same person. Abusers, many times, they groom their victims. They prepare them. They don't just come in and attack. They prepare them. They might give them special attention. They might give them gifts. They might fill an unmet need in their life. And then they begin to isolate them. And that child feels special. They feel like they have favor. And then that person, the abuser, will begin become more physical, more intimate. Then they begin to use secrecy, blame, and threats to maintain control. Because a child that young, many times, they don't even know what sex is, period, much less what happening to them is something that's wrong because they're being fed lies, that this is love, this is natural, this is normal, and they don't know any different. The abusers have said that they seek out kids who are quiet, passive, many times troubled, and they look for kids that are in single parent or broken homes, and especially ones, kids who are particularly trusting. Family structure is the most important risk factor in child sexual abuse. Now, this doesn't come from me. This comes from information. This came from an article called Darkness to Light. And it said the most important risk factor was family structure. And it said that children who live with two married biological parents are at low risk for abuse. Now, isn't that amazing that God's plan for families and marriages, one man and one woman getting married for life and having children, those kids have the least risk of child abuse. The risk increases when children live with step-parents or a single parent. Now, children who live without either parent, like foster kids, they are 10 times more likely to be sexually abused. We have a lot of adults that are walking around wounded, church. A lot of wounded people that have suffered as a child, and they've never healed from it. Even many Holy Ghost-filled apostolic people still suffer from things like depression, shame, guilt, and anger as a result of being a victim of sexual abuse as a child. And in some places, in some churches, not here, but in some places they said, well, if you got the Holy Ghost, that should be enough. You shouldn't have any more problems with this. 
that's not true. And what Linda Doty, this is her book, Help Me Heal. This is an awesome, I've already read several things about this book. And she said, the problem is not with the Holy Ghost. People get the Holy Ghost. There's nothing wrong with the Holy Ghost. But what's wrong is people that get the Holy Ghost have misperceptions, wrong ideas. They have a filter in their mind of things that aren't right. They've been fed mistruths. They don't know how to trust. Many times they might view God. If they were abused by their father, they don't know how to have a relationship with someone that's called our Heavenly Father because, well, if the Heavenly Father is like my earthly father that abused me, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if I want to have that relationship with him. So when it comes to Christian counseling, it's not about saying that the Holy Ghost isn't enough. It's about helping that person heal so that they can be fully open to the working of the Spirit and what God wants to do in their life. Many times people who reach adulthood who have suffered sexual abuse as a child suffer in other ways as well. Statistics tell us that females are three times more likely to end up with substance abuse. Now that could just be regular drugs that could be prescription medication a lot of times they'll get hooked on pain medication because you know they have that time of numbing and they don't have to think or feel they end up with mental health problems females are two times more likely to suffer depression to attempt suicide males who have been sexually abused over 70 percent over seven out of ten guys they'll seek treatment for substance abuse suicidal thoughts and even suicide attempts People who have suffered sexual abuse, they're four times as likely to end up with eating disorders or obesity. You might say four times, that seems like a lot. But the reason is because when it comes to food, it's something they can control. What happened to them, they could, felt like they couldn't control. They were taken advantage of. They were forced. But they can choose what goes in their mouth or doesn't. And that ranges from obesity to anorexia to bulimia, whether I'm going to starve myself and not allow myself that or if I'm going to use food as a comfort. So they have four times as likely to have eating disorders and two times as likely to be obese. They end up, people who have had sexual abuse, they end up with more physical problems than the rest of the population. Their risk goes up for fibromyalgia, IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, diabetes, cancer, heart problems, stroke, hypertension, because we all know that stress does bad things to our bodies, don't it? And stress levels, cortisol, it causes a lot of issues in our body. Male survivors, they have twice the HIV infection rate of non-abused males. So if you just think about looking around the room in your, in your job, maybe looking around the neighbors that live in your neighborhood, even in this room, there's victims among us that have suffered greatly we just don't recognize it because they've buried it and hidden it but we want to be a church that can have compassion that can help and so that brings me kind of to my point many times people who have dealt with sexual abuse when they walk into a session that's taught on sexual purity they may battle with thoughts like what's the point I'm already dirty I'm already unclean why should I worry about trying to be sexually pure why should I worry about not committing sexual sin they're still grieving the loss of their innocence as a child, so it's hard for them to imagine themselves with descriptive words such as pure, clean, holy, and righteous in the eyes of God. Even going so far as to thinking, I don't deserve that, because a lot of times they think, well, if that happened to me, I must have deserved it. I'm a bad person. And they feel like they can't go on and even have a sexually fulfilling life within the bounds of marriage. Many times they struggle with having marriage and having a, a sexually fulfilling life within the bounds of marriage because they have so many bad memories associated 
with what sex has not meant to be. And even others will come to the point where they suffer with anger at God because they ask themselves, how can a loving, kind, all-seeing, all-powerful God allow such a terrible thing to happen to me as a child? To the point they become anger and bitter and decide I don't want to serve him. I'm going to rebel. I don't want to follow his word. But at the end of the day, God is a good God. But he has given mankind a choice. And choices that people make have consequences that don't affect just them. And you say, but that's not fair. But we ask ourselves, in this room, every single one of us, we are born sinners, right? We've all made mistakes. Maybe we've never been the perpetrator and sexually abused someone. But have we ever told a lie that hurt someone? Have we ever committed an act, um, ever hurt someone's feelings? Have we ever, whether intentional or unintentional, we have all done things that have impacted someone else in a negative way because of our choice. So then where do you draw the line? Do you say, well, God should allow these things because they're not too serious, but then not allow that? God's not a respecter of persons. He's given mankind. And the thing is what people have to understand, it grieves God so deeply when people are hurt, when they experience abuse, when they experience pain, because that was not his intention. He suffers and grieves to see these things happen. There's a lady named Dawn Wilson, and she was the victim of child abuse by a man she trusted. And she wrote a really awesome article, and I'd like to share some things from her article that she wrote she had gone to someone, and I don't know if it was a counselor or a friend or whatnot, but she finally, and for someone to be to the point where they finally are ready to admit and be open that they've had sexual abuse in their life, it's a really big deal. And how that person first responds can really be a make or break moment. And so she admitted that she'd been sexually abused as a child by a man she trusted. And the person that she spoke with, their first response back to her was, well, you just need to learn to trust men again. And she said, I got mad. I got really mad. I thought, she doesn't understand the depth of my fear, my disgust, my anger, and my helplessness. She didn't even acknowledge my emotional scars. And as with many women, she said, my scars of abuse felt unique. In other words, when people have, filled, have experienced sexual abuse and they experience all those feelings, they think that it's just them. I'm the only one that feels this way. Nobody else has felt the way I have felt because people don't talk about it too much. She goes, I was confused about what was normal, and I used a lot of defense mechanisms to get through life. If you've been sexually abused, if you know someone, they may cope with things in different ways. People may, they may hide, kind of keep people at extreme distances because, you know, if, that idea, well, if I don't get close to anybody, they can't hurt me. So they isolate themselves. They put up a wall. May remain numb. People that get married, they may find it difficult to respond sexually. Because if they do, if you become vulnerable to someone, you're giving up control. And that's hard for them. That person may feel damaged. They may see themselves, I'm just a sex object, nothing else. And many times when people have experienced sexual abuse, that is something that then leads them later into promiscuity, sexual sin. Because that's all they know. They, all, they only know the perverted, distorted view. They don't know the true and pure view. She says, but like me, you might pour yourself into being good. You might just embrace ministry. And you don't understand the power of gospel. And she said, so I focused on, I'm going to please God to gain his favor. You know, I have to earn his love. I have to be really good, and then he'll love me. So people might respond to abuse with anxiety, depression, self-loathing, 
self-harming actions, fear of intimacy, homosexuality, indecisiveness, perfectionism, a need for control, eating disorders, addiction, the list goes on and on. But it doesn't just stop with the initial action that's been perpetrated on them. It can have long-lasting effects into their life. Don Wilson said, Satan doesn't care how we react to the sinfulness of sexual abuse as long as we don't turn to Jesus. The enemy knows that when we find ourselves, our identity, our security in Christ, then we can go on and live in victory. She says, it took me a while to get there, though. For years, I thought I need to protect my abuser because if I expose him, then it's going to hurt the family. It's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt those that loved him. But she said, the enemy delights in warping thoughts, doesn't he? And we know that's true because he's a liar. So along the way, she learned some lessons she says, I first had to learn how deeply God really loved me, deeply and completely. God's word says I'm precious in his sight. The other thing she had to come to terms with is that God saw the abuse and did not condone it, and that I don't have to either. I don't have to stay silent. I don't have to bury the pain and the trauma. The Lord hates all wickedness, including the one's actions. Now, God doesn't hate people, but he hates sin, and he doesn't condone it. She went on to say, I can pray for wisdom, and I can entrust justice to the heart of God. Because when you reach the point of anger to the point of revenge, she says, I had to get to the point that I realized that God will repay. I don't have to. I can entrust him to take care of it. And if God doesn't take care of it while they're down here, if they never come to God, there will come a day of judgment when they will stand before God for their actions. She says, I know I can forgive others because I've been so greatly forgiven. And if I grow in bitterness, it only makes my pain worse. Only makes my pain worse. My bitterness doesn't hurt my abuser. It hurts me. She goes on to say, I can pray for my abuser's change of heart and repentance. Now, man, that would be a hard prayer. That would be a hard prayer, someone that's inflicted abuse on us, to say, God, let him come to repentance. Let him find you. Let him come to the truth. I mean, that would be a challenge. I mean, can you imagine if you walked into a church and your abuser was filled with the Holy Ghost and worshiping God? You would feel like that was so unfair, wouldn't you? Like, God, how could you give it to him? You don't deserve it. And you work through all those feelings. But she said, when you come to the point of forgiveness, you can pray that they will turn from wickedness. She says, I don't have to live in fear like a victim. Peace and victory come as I study and rest in knowing who I am in Christ. I find healing. I find comfort in him. I learn how to communicate clear boundaries in all relationships. And that's important because knowing what's true and right and what's inappropriate and wrong, they have to learn that because it was so skewed as a child to learn what's appropriate boundaries. She goes, and I learned to communicate that. She says, I saturate my life with scripture. Knowing that my thoughts will control my actions and responses, I have to ask God to transform my thinking. And what I think is so amazing about this is that in the same way we've talked about how someone that's been addicted to pornography and they have to change their thinking, they have to come to a point where they allow God to transform their thoughts so that it changes their actions. Someone who's been a victim of sexual abuse, they have to have that same thing happen to them. Their thinking has to change, how they view things, the filter that they look at life through. Because I love this description in one of the books that I read, I don't remember which one right now, so forgive me. But it says when bad things have happened in life, sexual abuse or, or decisions we feel guilty about, it's like a coffee filter. 
and you put, every time you make coffee, you throw out the old one and you put in a nice clean white filter, put in those fresh grounds and you, and you put the water in and it brews it through there and makes a nice pot of coffee that tastes really good. So, well, in life, when we've had a lot of bad instances and things happen, it's like you have a filter and that filter is full of nasty gunk and junk and grossness. And then when life pours through us and life happens to us, we begin to see everything through that filter of nastiness and gunk and junk. And it always comes out looking dirty and nasty because our thinking and the way we process things in our mind is not the right thinking because we've been so twisted and abused and taken advantage of. So we allow God to change our thinking even when we've been a victim and not necessarily even the perpetrator. I grow and heal as I rub shoulders, she said, with godly women who model how to respond with the pure love of Christ and just trusting God to help me to stand in strength. And said, I can, as a member of the body of Christ, be a part of holding abusers accountable, especially within the church. Because if there does come a moment, there may be times it's, you know, not happened here, but there may come a moment in time when there has been someone, where there has been sexual sin and they have to be held accountable especially if in a place of leadership. She said, I can also encourage those who still struggle towards freedom from the pain and insecurities that arise out of sexual abuse. Let's go to 2 Peter 1 and 3, Brother Zach. And the Bible tells us there that according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue. When we receive the Holy Ghost and we receive power, he gives us the ability to grow in all the things that pertain to life, to godliness, calling us into glory and even virtue. And I think what is so hard sometimes for people to grasp when they've experienced sexual abuse or any type of abuse is that when you've repented and been baptized in Jesus' name and received the Holy Ghost, the Bible says old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are a new creature in Christ. And all that abuse, we still have the memory of it. But God doesn't see us as dirty or unclean or unworthy. The Bible says he looks at us and he sees his righteousness. And so we discover that our strength comes from his presence, that we can find strength in the Holy Ghost as it leads and guides us. The second thing, the other thing that she said that I thought was so amazing is how we talked about that when people engage in sexual sin like pornography and such, they're doing it to please their self. It's self-pleasing instead of God-pleasing. On the flip side of the coin, Don says, the path to thriving begins with God focus, not self-focus. If we continue to gaze inward, we will always see our scars. But when we gaze on Jesus, we see his scars. And remember that he died so that we could be whole again. We can trust this one who has loved us so completely. Isn't that amazing? She says, my way of healing is to God focus instead of self-focus. No longer dwelling and focusing on all the things that happened to me, but focus on him and how much bigger than my problems he is and how much he has done for me. She closed it by saying, my greatest comfort is knowing that Jesus understands abuse because he suffered great abuse. He even suffered abuse to the point of death in order that we could have life and brings us hope. And that's what people need the most, is they need hope. Because people that don't have hope, they feel like they have no reason to live. They, that's where depression and suicide and all those things come in. They need to know that there is hope. And the scars will remain. The scars will remain, but God's 
healing grace is so comforting. It's a balm that heals us. And it really is a long, hard road from sexual abuse. Many of us maybe know people that that has happened to. Maybe there's someone that that has happened to under the sound of my voice. But here's one thing for sure. If we're a parent in this house tonight, we want to protect our children from that ever happening to them, don't we? We don't want our children to suffer sexual abuse. Now, I know we can't put our kids in a bubble and just, you know, put them in a bubble and tell them to stay in their room until they're 18 and never come out, and then you'll be fine. We know that they're going to be exposed to the world, school, friends, church. It's, they're going to have situations and experiences that we can't control. As the statistics have shown us, the majority of the population, they're exposed to porn as a child, as a young teen. And you know what's really staggering about that is that 79% of unwanted exposure to Internet pornography takes place in the home. The first time a kid ever sees pornography is in the home. That's because boundaries and prevention has not been taken. But it is a tragedy that can be prevented. Our job as parents, we got to protect our children from the dangers of the Internet. We want to protect them from becoming a victim of sexual abuse. And not just pornography. I mean, we live in a day and age in a society where things, you hear terms like cyberbullying, where kids are bullied on social media to the point that they have committed suicide and taken their own life because they felt so harassed. Sexting, kids sending out racy or inappropriate pictures to friends. Gaming violence, online predators. It's our job to make sure our kids stay safe. Amen, parents? Amen. We would not send our toddler, Brother Mullen, you would not send Lucas out in a busy street and say, okay, son, I want you to go out there and figure out how not to get hit. We would never do that. I mean, that's just ludicrous to even consider the thought. And in the same way, we can't just give our kids free and open access to the Internet and TV and any channel they want and just hope they don't get hurt or see something they're not supposed to see. So what can we do to help protect our families? So I'm going to give you a few guidelines, and then I'm going to go over some specific things. Um, Pastor, there is a stack of papers down there that you helped me copy. Thank you so much for that. If you don't care just to pass one out, I think there's enough for everybody in here to have one. So while he's passing them out, let me go over a few things. Number one, if our kids get to the age that they're old enough to be on a tablet, to be on the Internet, to, we need to help make sure our kids understand what type of information is okay to share online and what type of information is not okay. Personal information. Our kids need to know that they don't need to be sharing things like addresses, phone numbers, and private thoughts when they get online, right? Number two, put your computer in a family room or a common space where you have the most interaction. Danger can occur when a computer is privately relegated to a private room or a bedroom where things can be looked at or accessed with no supervision. So if we put the computer in a, fa in a family room or somewhere where there's traffic or family coming through, that kind of helps deter inappropriate behavior online and can prevent privacy and secrets. Number three, install filters. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to go over some of those things that you have in your hand here in just a moment. There are things out there that can help protect you, and we're going to talk about it. Number four, educate your kids on the dangers of cyber bullies, online predators, online gaming. Make them aware 
that what they post online is out there forever. How many people have you seen that ended up getting embarrassed because a photo they thought they only sent to a friend or a boyfriend who is now the ex-boyfriend has posted it out there in anger for everyone to see and they're humiliated and embarrassed? Kids need to know. You put it out there online, it's there forever. How many times have we seen someone put a tweet out there it was not appropriate. They deleted it, but it was too late. People already screenshotted it or shared it, and it's out there for eternity. Kids need to know that. What they say and type and put online, it's out there forever. So now let's go over this reference page. Can I have one, please? Thank you. All right, so if you look at the top where it says protecting your home's Wi-Fi network, how many here have Wi-Fi in your house? Raise your hand. I think that's everybody but Bishop. <laughs> everybody but Bishop. You have a Wi-Fi network in your home. So that first up there where it's, the, it's www.howtogeek.com, it's a how-to article about protecting your kids online using a program, a software, it's free, called OpenDNS. DNS. And I've put two little screenshots, and I know those are really small, and I didn't realize how small they were going to be whenever I copied them, so I apologize. But OpenDNS dashboard, it just kind of shows you, basically the way it works is that your home is assigned an IP address, and OpenDNS comes in and alters and gives you a new one that allows you to filter what content comes into your home onto the, any device that is connected to Wi-Fi. And what is so awesome about this is that if you assign someone in your home, which they typically recommend you make it the wife or the mom, is that um, just, and, and the reason for that is it's not, for, the, for most cases, not in all of them, but in most cases, if pornography or something like that is an issue, it typically tends to be more male. So sometimes, or you could make it someone outside your home. But I know you can't see it on that right-hand side, but if you click on the settings tab and then click on your IP address, it brings up all those little drop-down boxes, and you can go in and customize it for your home. So like for us, I screenshotted that, and it's really too small to see. But for our home, we have marked where no, no sites can be accessed where you can purchase weapons, where you can do gambling, where you can access a chat room, where you can view pornography. All those things have been check, 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 check. So any device, whether it's an iPad or a phone, walk in and it's connected to the Wi-Fi, None of those sites can be accessed. And if someone tries to, it'll just pop it up and say, this site has been blocked by OpenDNS, and they're not allowed to access it. So that is a layer of safety, because if they're never exposed to it, they may never develop an appetite for it. So that's that one. CovenantEyes.com is the next site listed there. That is the link for eBooks, and some of the eBooks that are short articles that you can read, I'm telling you, Covenant Eyes is one of the most amazing, 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 amazing places to go for information, help, guidelines, software, tools to help you stay safe. Um, in fact, when I took my sexual purity class in college, a lot of the things we read came from Covenant Eyes. But here's just some examples of some different subjects that they cover. Pornography use and protection, family protection, support for couples, church support, how to keep your family safe on the internet. I mean, it runs the gamut. There are so many good things there. I can't stress that enough. Now, Covenant Eyes is not just information. They also have created products you can use. So the next one where it talks about services, that link there, it provides information on how to download and use filtering and accountability services on your mobile devices because you say, well, that's all well and great when they're connected to Wi-Fi, but what if they leave the house and they have their phone and now they're not on Wi-Fi anymore? 
they can look at anything they want. There's no Wi-Fi filter in place there. So Covenant Eyes is one listed there, and the one right below it, which is called Triple X Church, and that website is x3watch.com, they both offer services. You can download an app on your phone that will give you, it'll change your web browser. It will also provide accountability where if the person that has this mobile device would go to access, say, a pornography site, whoever the person is set up as their accountability partner, they'll receive a report that they tried to access something inappropriate. Now, what's so great about Covenant Eyes and X Church, it won't allow them to access it. It blocks it, but then it'll send a report that it tried to be accessed, okay? So it's a really great feature for tablets or devices that have the ability to get on the internet even when not linked to Wi-Fi, okay? So that's great. Next, I have listed TV protection. Now, of course, I realize everybody has different levels and types of TV. Some have, you know, just what you can get with your antenna. Some have cable. Some have satellites. So everything's different. But I just want you to be aware that you can go into the settings of whatever your TV provider service is on your TV, and there are parental controls available to you. And you can set passcodes. They're different. Even, you know, how, like, you've ever um, turned on a TV show, and it'll say, uh, T7 or T14 up in the corner, that's telling you that's the rating for that show. Like this show is appropriate for kids seven and up, or this show is appropriate for kids 14 and up. So you can actually set a boundary where, say, any show that's, that has a higher rating than T14, they're not allowed to see it. And if they try to click on it, they'll say, you must enter a code to view this. And of course, they don't know the code, they can't view it. So it protects kids and protects families from clicking on something inappropriate even accidentally because even if they're oh, I'm just going to flip through channels and see what's on it keeps them from seeing something inappropriate even if they're flipping through channels so I think that's really great utilize that parents the next one it's www.custodio.com um, I've given you the link family how it works what this does this is a great feature. We utilize it in our home. My husband, it's, we pay for a monthly service. Now, if you want to use this for one device, it's free. Two or more, there's a small monthly fee. This allows you to use an app to put timers on any of your kids' devices. If they have a tablet, if they have a phone, if they have something like when they get the tablet, they could spend all day on it and never come off of it. Well, Trevor's kind of in that mode right now. And so we put a timer. You know, this is whether it's one hour, two hours of school's in session, or if it's summertime, that changes but allows us to set a timer. The other thing that it allows is it's able to put come on and cut off times. So for example, on the tablet and on their um, Kindle and on Mariah's little iPod, they can't access anything on the internet before eight in the morning. And they can't access right now, it's summertime, they can't get on it after 10 at night. It, it disables it where they cannot get on it. So that way you don't have to worry about in the middle of the night, what if they went and snuck in the living room and got their phone and it's, not, it's disabled, they can't because through control of the app, the parent has control of their kid's device. So that's excellent. It's well worth the cost. It's not much. Do you remember how much it is? Not right of hand. Screen time by Apple, he said, is another one that does that. So that's great. So there are things out there that you can utilize to protect your kids. Um, gaming systems like Xbox, Wii, Nintendo. As you all know, you can operate and use those gaming systems offline or you can use them online where they get on and talk to other people while they play. I highly recommend that you monitor your kids and who they're interacting with. Like for us personally, it's just a personal choice. It's not right or wrong. For us personally, we don't let Trevor play online with other people. He strictly uses it offline um, just because we just don't think he's old enough or ready for that. 
But there are parental controls in the gaming systems. People just may not be aware. You can go in, we have a timer set on his Xbox, just like we do on the tablet. And there's only a certain amount of time per day he can play it, and when that time runs out, he's done. Now, if we choose to allow him to have more time, that requires us walking into his room, getting his controller, putting in a passcode, and setting how much time extra we want him to have. Otherwise, he's done. So that also sets a limit on screen time. So I also would say that you should monitor the games they're playing, okay? Games are listed with, this is for mature, this is for teen, this is for kids. They are rated. Pay attention to that. One of the things that is utilized, you know, when people play online um, with other people, there are people out there that are pedophiles that use, they know that, and they use it as a way to get, because they'll pretend to be a kid and interact with your kid. And you know there's been stories out there of kids that ran away to meet someone that they thought was a friend and it was a pedophile. So just be careful. All right? If you flip it over on the back, this is a list of either resources I've utilized in this series. There are books listed here. Um, yeah, great. Thank you, honey. See, he's so great. He's already ahead of me. So every man's battle. If you are a man, I don't care if you've ever dealt with sexual sin or pornography or not, this is an excellent book because here's the deal. Even if you've never viewed pornography, you are going to face at some point somebody walking down the street that's dressed immodestly, someone, someone on a billboard, and how to deal with that and keep your mind pure. This, I cannot stress this enough, this is excellent, excellent, excellent. Covenant Eyes, I've lifted several articles there at covenanteyes.com. Um, Parenting the Internet Generation, Seven Potential Threats and Seven Habits for Internet Safety. I've read it. It's excellent. If you have kids, I highly recommend that you jump on there and read it. And most of these articles are short. You can read them in like 10 minutes. They're not like 50 pages long. Another one, pornography statistics, 250 plus facts, quotes, and statistics about pornography use, if you're interested in that. The next one, porn-free church, raising up gospel communities to destroy secret sins. That's excellent, too. Um, Muhammad Ali on modesty. I told you all that story last week. Um, I shared that link there if you wanted to read it. This next one by Driscoll at Campus Ministry United. Porn Again Christian, a frank discussion on pornography and masturbation. This article is not for the faint of heart, y'all. It's straightforward in your face. Like, you think the Message Bible is straightforward. I'm telling you, it's just straightforward, not pulling any punches. So just be forewarned if you go to read that. The next one, Every Woman's Battle. This is the companion. That's every young woman's. Um, I have Every Woman's Battle in there. Yeah. Every Woman's Battle. This is kind of the companion book um, to Every Man's Battle. And you know how I talked a little bit last week about addressing the women and about how we've got to keep our conversation pure and how we need to guard our thoughts, how we interact with people in the workplace, things like that. This is a really excellent resource for staying sexually pure as a woman in this generation as well. And there, let me just real quick, there's some other companion books in this series for Every Man's Battle. Um, my husband and I have these. This is Preparing Your Son for Every Man's Battle. So this is something that you can read to, if your son's up and coming and going to be a preteen and a teenager, you can help them know how to deal with stuff that they're going to face in Every Young Woman's Battle. I don't have, I wish, I can't find it, and I'm wondering if I loaned it out. But there's another book um, in that same series, and it's called Every Heart Restored. This book is specifically written to the wives who have, whose husband has had an addiction to pornography and how they healed. 
because it's a healing for them as well as their husband overcomes that addiction. It's how they heal. So I cannot find that book, and I don't know where it is, but um, if I can't find it, I'll order another one because I probably just loaned it out at some point to someone that needed it. Um, Gilkerson is another author, and I know you might look and say they're written weird. Basically, this is my reference resource page for that handbook that I wrote, so that's the format we had to write them in. So it has the author's name, um, the year, and then the title. Um, your brain on porn, when I talked to you in the first session about how it affects your brain, how the connections and the things that are fired in the deep trenches and the, all of that, and how you have that part of your brain that's the drive center, all of that you can find there. Um, Lasser's book. Healing Wounds, Dr. Lasser is absolutely amazing. You heard me talk about some of the things that he, he's the one that um, did the whole Nehemiah thing about healing and going through all the steps. He's, he's, he's really awesome. So Healing Wounds of Sexual Addiction, this is one of the books that um, was required reading for my class, and it's really excellent. So that's also on there as well. Um, Every Heart Restored, which I already mentioned. Um, Dr. Struther, Scratching the Surface, www.yourbrainonporn. That's another way talking about how pornography does affect your brain. Um, I've listed there the link to the article by Don Wilson that I talked about tonight on healing sexual from sexual abuse. And then that d2l.org. That site right there, a lot of the statistics I shared with you is from that. I'm telling you, if you go to there, to that site, and it'll have several statistics. If you scroll down, there's a thing that says click this link for professionals. You can click it. You don't have to be. It's, but it gives you a 14-page printout of all the different types of sexual abuse and all the different things of how um, sexual abuse, all the statistics, all those things. So if that's something you're interested in, um, those are for you, and hopefully you can make avail yourself of those. So these resources, they can help create a level of protection for our family. I've got several other books there. Um, some of them I stole out of my husband's office, and they're not on the, on the list here. But a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these books here are um, like this one, Living With Your Husband's Secret Wars. It's another book written to women whose husbands battle with pornography. An Affair of the Mind, same thing. And then this one, um, Surviving an Affair by Willard Harley. He's the same man that wrote, if I'm not mistaken, His Needs, Her Needs, How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. But this is Surviving an Affair, and this book is excellent um, also and can be healing for someone who's either, either been the person involved in the affair or who had a spouse that was involved in an affair. And this book was given to me. I pray that I never have to use it um, because it basically helps you work with a child that's been involved in sexual abuse. Um, that may be something that's beyond my capabilities as a counselor and I would need to refer onwards, but this book is about a young girl and how she talked to a bird that she befriended on the beach and she named that bird Love Dove and she began to confide in the bird about her sexual abuse and how that bird responded to her. And uh, it's a really tender, sweet, but sad book as well. Um, but it's kind of an icebreaker when you're dealing with kids because you can read this story to them. Um, about sexual abuse so resources are available um, and they can help us but they're not foolproof right we know that one of the best ways that we can help our kids to be to prevent them not to be a victim and also to keep them from accessing inappropriate things we just got to be involved in their life we got to stay involved we've got to know where they're at who they're talking to what they're doing who their friends are um, some of the other things we can do to help protect our families like for example be careful about where your kids spend time. Here's an example. Like, my husband and I, 
we have a lot of kids in the neighborhood, and they like to go outside and play. And we don't have a real busy street, so they'll play kickball out there, ride their bikes out there. They might jump on the trampoline in the backyard. We tell our kids, and they know this, our kids are not allowed to go in any neighbor's house. I don't care if it's even to use the bathroom. I don't care if you're three houses down. You're going to come home and use the bathroom in our house. You're not allowed in the neighbor's house because I don't really know them. Secondly, I don't let any other kids come in our house to use our bathroom because who knows what could be said if they walked into our house and went back and said something that wasn't true. Go use the bathroom at your house. Okay? Not being mean, it's about protection. It's about being wise. Okay? Probably the list of places that we would allow our kids to go for a sleepover could be counted on one hand. I know that there's a lot of parents in this generation that they're just kids. They're not going to a sleepover anywhere whatsoever. Um, that is a lot of times places where bad things can happen to kids is at sleepovers. There are very few places that our kids will ever go spend the night. Mamma Papa's house, not a problem. Aunt and uncle, there may be some, but I'm telling you, there's places that we will not let our kids go spend the night. And there's places that my, my kids have friends at school, but I might not even let them go spend time at that person's house. Because you don't know what things they watch on TV, what kind of music they're listening to. Uh, if Mariah has a friend that has an older brother, I mean, you just don't know. And so, you know, I, I'm, there's places I'm not going to let my girl go stay the night. Um, my son, I'm not going to let him go stay places. I mean, what if he ends up, some kid there has a phone that he's showing pornography to his buddies. Or they're watching a movie that has a nudity in it. And it's not about, you know, don't be offended. It's just that I'm just trying to protect my kids. I'm just trying to protect my kids. And if that means that it ends up offending somebody, well, at the end of the day, if my kids are protected, then, you know, that's my job as a parent. That's your job as a parent. The other thing you really need to do is keep open lines of communication with your kids because you want your kids, if anything ever does happen, Lord forbid, you want them to feel comfortable to come talk to you and tell you. Okay? You need to really listen to them. Face-to-face -face interaction is vital in order for parents to stay connected. You know, some of these kids that are latchkey kids and they never see their parents, and one works days, one works nights, and they never see each other because when one's sleeping, the other one's at work, and they're just pretty much taking care of themselves all the time. There's a lot of time in there when things can happen. And, so, and I mean, I'm not saying that that's a, a, you know, that's just the way sometimes it has to be. I know when we were married, I worked days and he worked nights, but I'm just saying that we have to find time and ways to be connected with our kids in order to know what's going on in their life. In order for kids to be safe and responsible online, though, it starts with a mindset, too, because that means we're modeling what's appropriate behavior for them, right? Dan Lorman stated the question, it's not how do I keep my family safe on the Internet, but rather how do I parent my kids well in a cyber culture? Because the truth of the matter is they're going to be on the Internet. I mean, now in school, every kid gets a Chromebook. You know, that's how they do their assignments. They're online. They're submitting their assignments online. They're utilizing the Internet even in school. So we can't keep them cut off from the Internet, but we've got to teach them how to manage that well. He said, and I love this statement, and I just, if I'll say it probably twice, we must teach our kids to surf our values. We must teach our kids to surf our values. In other words, I want to instill values and morals in my kid that when he gets online, 
He or she is not trying to see what can I look at that I shouldn't, what can I see, what can I access, but that they're going to surf our values. They're just going to look up things that are okay. I mean, Mariah, oh my word, drives me crazy. Those little squishy things that are all the rage. She loves to watch these videos where these people cut them open and take them apart and see what kind of goo is inside. Like, oh my word, I don't even know, but for some reason that's so entertaining to her. But you know what? That's okay. They're just some kids pulling them open and seeing what's on the inside. You know, so teaching them to surf our values, to, to, to know that when I get online, I want to look for things that are clean. I want to look for things that are appropriate. That if something comes up that's not appropriate, I want to shut it off. I don't want to be exposed to them. We do that by being an example, by teaching what God wants for our lives. That means we have to have good morals and values in the home. Because at the end of the day, what we do is going to speak louder than what we say. We tell our kids, don't do this, don't do that, but we're not living it. They will not listen to us. All right? Stand with me tonight. We want to strive to be sexually pure in our thoughts, our conversation, and our actions. So we take these resources that we've been given. We use them. We put filters in place. We do everything we can to protect our children. We lean on Christ. We lean on him and ask God to help us be good parents, to help us live sexually pure as an adult, to, to guard our thoughts, to guard our mind. We surround ourselves with godly men and women. A lot of times what happens in our life and the actions that take place can be determined by the company we keep and who we hang around. But we can walk in the spirit and enjoy a life of sexual purity. And that takes me back to our verse I read tonight from John 10 and 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. The enemy just wants to destroy people. He wants to destroy families, marriages, children. God's not a respecter of persons, but you know what? The enemy isn't either. He doesn't care. He just wants as many people as he can to be without hope, to feel like they're nothing and worthless, to take their life, to go to hell. That's his goal, to destroy. He's not just satisfied to steal innocence. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. But we serve a God that says, but I have come that they might have life. And not just life, but that they might have it more abundantly. And what I've constantly said to people many times in, in counseling in different sessions is that God doesn't just want us to survive. Like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to barely get by. No, he wants us to thrive. He wants us to have life. And he wants us to have it more abundantly. That's why when we get the Holy Ghost. We get power. We get joy. We get peace. Life more abundantly. A life we can enjoy. A life that we can feel good about. And when boundaries are in place and we feel like the boundaries, it's, what I think we should take home from this is that when we put these boundaries in place, this is not about punishing or restricting something. This is about protection. You know, if there's a guardrail that's up at the edge of a cliff, like, that's stupid. I hate that guardrail. It should let me go where I want to go. Well, you know what? Two steps over, and you're going to be going over the cliff and, you know, may lose your life. The guardrail's there for protection, Right? And then God puts boundaries in place in his word. He puts boundaries in place for sexual purity and how we should operate and live and how we should think about sex and how the things that we should and should not do. He's putting those boundaries in place not to punish us or say, you know, you know, I'm restricting you so that you can't have sexual enjoyment as a teenager or before you get married. He does it to protect us so that we can live fulfilled, that we can live with joy, that we can have peace. That is his goal for us. And ultimately, 
that we will go to heaven someday. That's our ultimate goal. And so I pray that we can have a church, have people that are sexually pure. And if there's someone that's here that says, you know, I've been a victim of sexual abuse, I've never talked about it. If you need to talk, feel free to come to Pastor and I. Or if you just, if you're a lady, you can come to me. If you're a guy, you can go to him. And we're here to listen, to help. We have resources available. Um, if it's beyond my scope of expertise, you know, I'll find a way, find someone that can help. Um, but we just pray ultimately for healing. So, Pastor, would you come tonight and just ask God to just put this in our mind and uh, close us out tonight? Amen. That concludes the sexual purity here course. When we get back from camp meeting, we'll be starting on uh, God is One series. All right? Uh, that's with me. God is One series. When we get back from uh, all the camp meetings and get the playing lands, lands back here in Mount, Mount Carmel. There are handbooks in the lobby. Uh, if you desire to have them, churches taking place here this weekend. Amen. People taking care of that. Uh, if you're going to men's conference in the month of September, uh, if you don't register tonight, tomorrow you're paid $5 extra, all right? So it'll be going from $20, $25 starting tomorrow online and, and such. So uh, right now I can't think. There's all kinds of things going through my head, but none I think that pertain to this. All right, yeah, most of it's personal. <laughs> you not interested in any of that. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Jesus. Lord. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.